Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back to 15 Minute Film Fanatics, the podcast that you know and love, where two friends watch a film separately and talk about it for the first time. So of course, this week's pick is Philip Kaufman's 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, um, a film that I haven't seen in a long time. And that uh, when we were looking for our horror movies this, this season to do, I said, oh, let's, let's do that. It'll be fun to watch again because I hadn't seen it in a long, long time. Um, so I, I watched it two days ago. I think, Mike, you watched it last night or the night before? I watched it last night. Okay, so let's talk. You want to start with part one? What's your overall takeaway? This movie was made by people who love movies. They love movies. This movie is deeply elusive. There are some things in this movie that look like uh, they look like they were silly or they look stilted or they look like they weren't done on purpose and they are 100% illusions uh, to other films. So for example, there's there's some weird angles in San Francisco as um, Donald Sutherland is running down the street uh, and being chased. It's very Fritz Lang. A lot of the daytime stuff done in color um, are allusions to earlier movies of the 70s and any of the scenes at night where they're being chased are all allusions to uh, famous black and white films. Um, I'm picking up a lot of Fritz Lang. I don't know if you pick up yeah. uh, anything different. This is, um, this is one of those movies that really, for me, straddles the crevice between being a, being a great movie and being a cult classic. You know, that there are, everybody has an awesomely bad cult classic where they're like, I know this movie's weird, but you got to stick with me. And then there's just movies that are that are good in and of themselves, something like um, The Thing. I, I don't know if you're a fan of, of yeah. The Thing. Uh, but this this movie, this movie, the, the opening setup is a gambit for the most extended chase scene that you'll ever see uh, in a movie barring, um, you know, The French Connection or something like that. <laughs> Uh, and and that's that's the that's the gambit of the movie is if you if if you stick with me there's a turning point and then it's just a roller coaster uh, after that. But what's your overall take? I mean, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I went around today like one of the few um, non-pod people telling everyone you've got to see this movie. Like, did you know that you can go on Amazon and see the you've got people are looking at me like, yeah, okay, Dan, that's great. I'm like, no, you have to watch it right now. Um, I love it because I just watched the '56 original. Um, maybe a couple weeks ago. And what I love about, I love a lot about this, this movie. First is that it captures the spirit of the original, but it doesn't try to outdo it. You know, I think, um, I, I think that it reminded me the lack of CGI makes this movie so much better. So when, when he's falling asleep and his pod version is coming out and starts screaming, or when he puts the, um, the hoe in its head, those scenes are so creepy. And, and if it were filmed today, or the remake with Daniel Craig, you know, the, the CGI is better and the pod people look better, but they don't look as creepy as, as they do in this movie. And it reminded me of what you said about how the Wicker Man was blessed with a small budget. So that was one thing. Um, but here's what I want to talk about in part one. I don't want to talk about how um, great it is that Donald Sutherland has the same sweater that he wears in Animal House, uh, or how great it is that Kevin McCarthy from the original is the guy that they almost hit in the car. Um, we have to devote an entire season to the dog with the banjo player's face. Maybe that'll come up later. Um, I don't want to talk about any of the great images in the movie because I know there's a lot of striking images in the movie, including the ending, which we'll talk about then. But what I want to talk about, what really left out of me this time, was the soundscape of the movie. And, you know, th this guy, um, Ben Burt, I think his name is, who did the sound for Star Wars, he's the guy that designed this. And I think the sound of a film is something we, we know is important, but we always take it for granted. Even film geeks like us, we take it for granted. But I could not stop paying attention to how terrific the sound was. I watched this with my headphones on. Um, and it reminded me of, first, you know how in 70s movies, the footsteps are always very distinct? 
Like we watch a conversation. I mean, that's a, a movie about sound, right? Alter merch. Yeah, certainly, certainly. So you notice that, and that's a 70s movie thing. Like everyone walks with very clear footsteps, right? But in this one, you have these long scenes where there's a clock or a heartbeat or a pulse running through the whole sequence. And it reminded me of what like Christopher Nolan tries to do with music. Um, like the scene where Donald Sutherland has to rescue her when she's asleep and the phone's off the hook. So the busy signal just goes on the whole time. And that's such a great effect because it's better than silence because it reminds you how quiet he's trying to be. And then, then the sound of their screams, right? Um, and the bagpipes at the end, when you hear the bagpipes when they get to the ship. So I just think the sound in this movie is incredible. Do you know what my favorite sound effect in the entire movie was? Because I noticed the same thing. Well, I, I, it's not the scream? It's the sound of the scissors at oh. the end when he sits down at his desk and he starts to do his clippings. Yes. That's, abs that's like pin drop beautiful sound it effect. Is. It really is. <laughs> All right, we'll talk about our favorite moments in part two. Okay. Hi, welcome back. So in part two, as you know, we like to talk about our favorite moment or our favorite line, something in the movie that kind of epitomizes the whole experience of seeing the film. Mike, what was yours? My favorite moment is when they're in uh, Donald Sutherland's house and they realize that they're completely surrounded for the first time and that, that nobody's coming to help them and that they, that they can't get out because this movie there's a kind of bait and switch in this movie, which is switched at that moment, which is you think that this is a conspiracy movie. You think that this is a, some kind of slow burn. And the movie sets itself up to be a movie about um, slow dawning realizations, but it's not. 25 minutes into this movie, the gambit is given to you and, and you realize, no, it's, it's that the entire city's already done. These are the last four people and they're gonna run. And they do something, anybody who likes uh, George Romero's movies or something like Night of the Living Dead, this is, this is the quality of that movie that they like where the entire world has turned on you. And so th this movie really moves into classic horror, again, from, from monster movie, right? It, 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 we've, we've spoken about the level of agency that the characters have, you know, and it, as long as they maintain a high level of agency, there's something that they can do about it. Uh, you're, you're in some kind of monster movie. You're, Saint, you're some kind of version of St. George. Uh, but if you're powerless and you're being chased and you're the mouse in that situation, it's a, it's a horror movie. Um, and so that's, I think, where we, where we find ourselves, where the, the characters are like, okay, we have some information. We have enough information to reach out to people. We're going to do this. And um, his girlfriend has fallen asleep and Jeff Goldblum is being Jeff Goldblum. Um, and uh, Cartwright, um, I forget her first name. Oh, yeah, Veronica. Veronica Cartwright uh, is doing an excellent job freaking out. She's, yep. she's scared enough just for everybody. She brings the viewer right in. And then one by one, everybody gets scared. And Donald Sutherland, by, by trying to come up with an escape plan, you can see that he's, he's totally lost control of the situation. And it's at the point, he's the last to get scared. And when he's scared, now you're scared because the last person to kind of hold out and be like, all right, we're okay, we're gonna figure this out, crumbles. And that's where the extended uh, chase scene you know, begins that that essentially encompasses the rest of the movie. Yeah, that's a great point because it's true about Donald Sutherland because you know, you know, uh, he says nobody keeps secrets. When, you can't keep secrets from the Board of Health. But what's fascinating about the movie is they've kept a very good secret from him. Is that these four are on the tail end of the whole thing. It's not like the city's about like they're about to come here. The flowers are here. You know, the the the, the pods are here. The the whole thing is going on. So that's a great point of how um uh, how only when he when he finally gets scared that's when you're fully committed. 
Well, speaking to your point, that's dramatized in the soundscape, which is the sound of the garbage trucks. Whether or not you can see them, as long as you can hear them, they're taking away the humans that crumble one by one. And that was my moment. So my moment was not a specific thing. It was how great it is that you keep seeing the garbage trucks throughout the movie or hearing the garbage trucks. And it's not done in a very, like you said before, elusive. It's not done in a very like nudge, nudge, wink, wink kind of way. You just, if you if you put somebody who couldn't um, couldn't speak the language and, and even turn the sound off and say, just watch this movie, they might say, what's with all the garbage trucks? Because they're, they're everywhere, or maybe they're not everywhere the first time you see it, but certainly when her boyfriend goes out with the remains <laughs> puts them in the garbage, puts them in the garbage truck, like, what's going on? And then these red garbage trucks are everywhere and they're mushing up the same stuff. And, and what occurred to me was, now that's a conspiracy. Once you get the public works department involved in the cleanup, then I'll see, I'll see the guys in the vests and, and organizing when the pod distributions happen with the megaphones. But as soon as you get the sanitation workers going, then, then you got a real conspiracy. Well, again, I think the brilliance of this film, okay, if you, if you had asked me to remake the film, that's the mistake I would have made. Everything would take, it would take the entire film for the city to, to get, to get there, right. over. Right, so, so, and that's dramatized. You can do kind of like a close reading of the way that the pods come out themselves. You would think that creating a clone of a human being would take some time that it's growing, right. but in the time it takes him to fall asleep, it's like reached out, got his DNA. And the freakiest thing about it is his little clone while he's sleeping grows the hair. Yeah. They, put the, they put the wig on it. I and um, do you, are you familiar with uh, Uncanny Valley? That no. like th things that resemble cartoons that are, that are obviously meant to represent humans, uh, but not look like a human, like the Simpsons. Sure. We, we empathize with, we empathize with other humans, but as you approach something that is kind of human looking, but not quite, your amount of empathy starts to rapidly decline and you're super freaked out. So that the, the thing that initially comes out of the pod, you're like, oh, that's vaguely humanoid and weird. At the point at which it has kind of a face, but no features and a wig, that's when you as a viewer start to freak out. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So the pre-Jeff Goldblum is not as frightening as the as the almost done Donald Sutherland. Nosebleed Jeff Goldblum though is yeah. terrifying. When he, yeah. So the, the movie got me back. The movie let me know what we were gonna do at the point at which he lays down for a shot with the, the curtain partially closed. Yeah. So you can see the foreground and background, right? They pull an Orson Welles on you so that they're both in focus. Yeah. Uh, and everything that's in focus is the same being connected by the same mind. And I was yeah. like, oh, okay, you guys know what you're doing. Yeah, totally. And that's a great point about how you and I, if we had to write this, we would have like, so we get the beautiful thing of the, the pods coming to the coming to earth in the credits. So you get that out of the way. And then the solar wind, we're told, brings them. And then we'd have to, okay, now here's how they make the pods. And here, it's like, but they're like, no, it doesn't matter. It's already happened. The game's over. This is, this is talk about in media rest. Talk about David Mamet's rule of um, you should enter every scene late and leave it early. That's it. This movie enters the whole plot very late. Oh yeah, I, so if it were me, the other mistake that I'd make is they would get to Leonard Nimoy at some point, as opposed to having, ha he, they, no, they've had him the whole time. Yeah. So. That's why everyone loves his books. We're gonna pause here because we just wanna tell you something. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. The first point is it's free. Yeah, second, they have all the tools that you need to create, record, and edit your podcast right on your phone or your laptop. Third, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so you can hear it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other places. You pick up sponsorships, you can make money from your podcast, and there's no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. 
Always be closing, Mike. Always be closing. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Okay, welcome back to part three. Uh, we usually talk about the title, our key takeaways. I don't think we need to talk too much about the title. Um, I think that's self-explanatory, yeah. but what are your key takeaways? My big takeaways about the ending is certainly that it could have, this movie could have very easily ended like The Matrix, where you would have your hero living in the bad world, but, but he really knows what's going on and he's going to keep fighting you know, for the truth and stuff like that. And you think that's what you get at the end when he's walking outside of uh, you know, um, the city hall or whatever it is in there, and Veronica Carlin sees him, you think you're gonna get that. And of course you don't. And that is such, it is such a beautiful, simple, great surprise that it's almost like textbook. It's almost like every other film plot twist should be measured against that because usually a plot twist involves, we have doing all this information. And it's like, um, at the end of this is the opposite of what we argued about with the treehouse scene in Hereditary, right? Because that's all this information has to come together and then Joey has to explain what's going on, who Paymon is, and you're like, never, no, it's in the book, it's why he, but this one is just, he turns around and does the point in the screen and it's, it, it's, it's crystalline, it's perfect. What do you make of the ending? I thought that it was uh, absolutely wonderful because even if you, even if you suspect or you're not sure or it's ambiguous to you whether or not they've gotten to him, uh, you're set up by the, by the previous 90 minutes of film that you just watched, just to love Donald Sutherland, just to, just to love him as a character, uh, to, to empathize with him. And so you don't wanna, you don't wanna believe it. You yeah. know, I'm not saying that every viewer is gonna be totally taken by surprise. There, I'm sure there's some people rolling their eyes and going, well, I knew from the time he came downstairs. I today. saw that coming. But even, even if you do, it still hurts. Uh, and that's what's so wonderful about it. And that's what's so great because when he gets it from the desk doing his clippings for his, now that he's a pod guy, doing, still doing his clippings, when he gets up from the desk and gets in line with everybody in the hallway, part of you is, is you like, what is he playing? Like, is he, is he, is he, is, is he like um, Winston in 1984? Is he just going through the motions to, so that he doesn't draw attention to himself? Because that's how they would get, that's how they were getting out of the city earlier when they'd gotten to the cab. And so I think that's, it's a, it's a great betrayal of Veronica Cartwright, but it's and it's also a, a fun betrayal of the viewer. Also, I, I think her face is just as operative as his face. Yeah. His face is a great still, uh, yeah. but her, her her instant level of of terror and horror uh, is is uncomparable. It's great. Question for you: Did any did any of this film, especially the first half when you were watching it, remind you of what it's like now to live in the time of COVID? I was I was busy trying to discern how seriously to take to take the opening uh, because I, I some of the opening um, the the opening drags but they do have a lot of credits yeah and but the the opening drag uh, totally disarms you for what you're gonna see like if you saw the movie poster and then you sat through those credits and then it's um, her with the boyfriend at home yeah. and he's watching the game and he's not paying, like like what is going on here. Um, but it all pays off with his headphones and it all pays off. It, it pays off brilliantly because really, again, it, the thing for me about this movie is it's really two movies and the, the first movie is set up, but when the second movie starts, it's, it's, un, it's unstoppable and everything is so tight and works together that I have, I have zero complaints once they start yeah, to run. Again, you just know you're in good hands and you're like, I'm riding the ride wherever it goes. Yeah.
It reminded me of COVID though, because it reminded me of like, you know, the health scare and what does this all mean? And, and everyone's got an opinion and all these rumors and, and, and walking around the city and how do you get it and how do you get infected and things like that. It was very, it was, it wasn't a one-to-one -one parallel. I'm not saying it was a, some prophetic film or something, but it was just kind of interesting to watch it now. Well, I, I was curious. I mean, I didn't, I tried to turn off my critic as, as much as I possibly could, but I, I, it's hard to not see it as metaphorical when they said it in San Francisco meaning it's it's either it's either uh hippies making fun of square culture and people go, people going square and becoming uniform or the opposite <laughs> of a square square criticism on hippie culture and how you know virally spreading and supp suppressing other ideas and you're not sure who it gets because because Leonard Nimoy is the center of it and he's both some kind of weird patriarchal figure but at the same time you sense that he's also some Kind of weird Freudian, you know. It's it's right. not clear what's actually in his books, but he could be either, and right. that that ambiguity I like. So I did. So in other words, I didn't take it as um, uh, as embodying physical sickness. I I embodied it on somebody's commentary on some other kind of uh, gnostical turpitude. Yeah, that's great, gnostical turpitude, and that's great because Donald Sutherland I think can straddle those two worlds of hippie and square. Because he does, he does, he has a square job working for the health department. He's going to make sure, you know, that the restaurants are all clean. But he's kind of a cool guy, and you know, and he, he cooks for himself and listens to jazz music. And and the, how many, how many, you know, how many should we take? Take five. Would <laughs> they have to take a speed to step? So he kind of straddles both of those worlds. And a, and a very um, unsuspecting hero. You wouldn't think he could be that compelling as a, as a leading guy, but he totally carries the movie. Uh and and so well again from that from that one scene he's he's that guy out of necessity because out of that group he you know what i mean he he's the one as soon as they cut off the world right what what he does in the phone booth is he tries to call every authority figure that he can possibly try to get and everybody says why don't you calm down don't tell too many people about it you know i understand that you're having but we've got it under control but you can't leave the telephone booth and start yelling and screaming about it because they're trying, they're trying to hush him up. Once you realize really they are the four people left and the right. movie does not make that clear again until that moment when they're all together in the house, that's when again, out of necessity, he's, he's the last man standing. Yeah. Sorry, Jeff. Oh, or he was, <laughs> anyway, he was. he was. Well, thanks for listening. That was a lot of fun. We hope you'll follow us on Twitter at 15MINfilm. We hope you'll um, rate us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. And please let us know what you want us to review.